Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming uh, here this evening. Again, my name is Caleb. So glad you guys are here with us. We are continuing through our study in the book of Philippians. One of the things that marks us here as a church uh, is we are expository teachers. What that means is the majority of time we're just walking chapter by chapter, word by word, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, We want to, in essence, hold the microphone up to God. Let him speak to us. And so we are in Philippians chapter 2 here this week. And our passage this evening is uh, just two verses, verses 12 and 13. And this really, this week and next week, is really kind of one big point that Paul is trying to make. But I wanted to separate it. So if you kind of this week and next week is part A and part B of the same sermon. And so this week, Paul is going to lay out kind of the, the doctrinal, theological foundation for the practical living that he's going to get to next week. But it's so important to make sure we get verses 12 and 13 right that I wanted to make sure we didn't rush through it, that we sat on it and make sure we laid the foundation correctly before we build up on it. And so that's kind of, again, kind of look at us this week and next week as one large sermon. Uh, And it's really Paul addressing to them how to follow Jesus, dealing with the issue of obedience, Uh, The word that some theologians will use is sanctification, the process of being sanctified, of being made into the image of Christ. And this is what Paul's going to be talking about now in verses 12 through 18. But tonight, we're just going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. So let's read that uh, together, and then we'll jump into it. So I'll read here verses 12 and 13, and then we will jump in. Paul writes this, the church in Philippi. He says, Therefore, my dear friends... Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. So Paul's laying out this question of obedience. Obeying God, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. Now this is a big question to ask, and one in which both I think everyone struggles with in moments of honesty, and one that maybe there's not much clarity on exactly how we are to think through it. Right, so I've seen lots of memes or GIFs, or that's right, they're pronounced GIFs, not GIFs. It's a whole other sermon. Uh, We can talk about it later if you want to talk about it, but GIFs of what the year 2020 looks like. And there was one in particular I saw where it was this guy who has a forklift and he was going to drop off a boat. And when he dropped the boat off, the forklift, he started backing up, but didn't realize the brake wasn't on the boat and the boat started to then back away. So he jumps out of his forklift to go and stop the boat. And as he goes to stop the boat, then the forklift wasn't at park and it started backing up. He turned and saw it and stopped the boat, but then got back into the forklift and the boat wasn't stopped yet. It kept rolling. So he thought he put it in park for the forklift, jumped out of it to go stop the boat. The forklift then ran back into the boat and did it. And he's just in the back with his hands on his hips trying to figure out what in the world he's doing. And somebody said that's the year 2020 in a video. And for me, I don't know about you, I see a video like that and it only feels like the craziness of this year so far. I can also feel that way often in my own Christian life, trying to follow after Jesus. 
Right? I begin to feel like there's this one issue in my life I can feel. I'm battling with the sin, with temptation. I go, I'm trying to wrestle with it, feel like kind of, okay, this is beginning to see progress, and I see something else pop up, and I go and get it, and all of a sudden this other thing starts rolling again. I go and try to get it, and it feels like my life is just out of control at times, and I feel like I can never truly make progress. And the, the process of the Christian life is one it feels like I'm fighting an uphill battle. There's always something that's there to remind me of my fallenness, of my need for a Savior. And I'm constantly reminded of my inability. So I don't know if anybody else ever feels like that. Or maybe you feel like you've got this thing under control. But in reality, the question is, for so many of us, I think in honesty, we feel like that. God, I just can't get my life together. I just kind of feel like a mess. And so the question is, in those moments, what do we do then? What is our answer as a church from Scripture on how then we are to fight sin, how we are to live the Christian life, how we're supposed to follow Jesus? And the reason why I know that this is such a confusing topic is because there are so many misconceptions that are out there. I'll just name a few of them that I've heard. I'm sure there's hundreds of others that you could say as well. But here are some of them. In those moments when you're struggling, here's what you need to do. Let go and let God. I don't even know what that means, honestly. Let go. What am I like? Letting go. Okay, I think maybe conceptually I can get there, but then let God, let God take the wheel, like let him take a whole, what, let go and let God, what, what does that actually mean? Does it mean I sit back then and become passive and God steps in and just does everything for me? I'm just going to let go, step back, and God's going to take it from here. I don't have to do anything else. Maybe you've heard this, that God helps those who help themselves. So then on the other end of the spectrum, it says, okay, no, no, don't let go. Hold on to it. Make sure that you help yourself. Be sure that you keep fighting. You keep doing it. You keep working for yourselves because those are the people that God's going to come and help. God will help those who help themselves. You've got to do this in your strength, in your ability, and God will come and help you in moments of your need. Is that how we are to live our life? Or one more phrase I hear often is that we need to stop trying and start trusting. Now, there are elements of truth in each of these. But the underlying push for them, I think, is unhelpful because you hear the back and forth between both of them. It's like we are deciding as we live this Christian life, we either have to step back and be passive and let God take care of it and we'll just trust Him and I'm not going to try at all, or we say, okay, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to take the reins, I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps, I've got this and God's going to help me because I am helping myself. What then is the biblical direction that God gives us on how to follow Jesus? on how to fight sin and how to fight temptation. Well, friends, I don't know of a more comprehensive sentence in the entire Bible to answer that question than Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul lays out in its entirety how we are then to follow Jesus and run this race, how we are to obey. And in it, so I want to, to this evening, just we got two points. And it's the two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. The two points are this, our work and God's work. Our work we'll see in verse 12, and then God's work we'll see in verse 13. Fleshing that out a little bit more to define it, what I mean by our work 
is what Paul would say as obedience. And God's work is grace. Or to put it one other way, our work is obedience, is following our Savior. God's work is grace, is indwelling his people. So how do we follow Jesus? How do we live the Christian life? How do we obey? Well, let's look and see from Philippians 2 how to answer that question. First, our work, verse 12. Paul begins, therefore. Now, I could spend the rest of the time on this word, so I'm just going to have to glance over it quickly. But here's the point that Paul's making in verse 12. He begins, therefore. And he's connecting the command he's about to say with what he has just written. And what he has just written is this beautiful explanation and beautiful lifting up and exalting of the life and the mind of Jesus Christ. Paul lays out the gospel and he says, look, here is Jesus who laid aside his glory in heaven to enter into the brokenness of this world, to live as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and became obedient. There's our word even there. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus dies in your place, taking the curse of sin on himself for you, and God then therefore highly exalts him and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory and praise of God our Father. Paul has just been in the heights of the beauty of the gospel and the theology and the doctrine of what God has done for us in Christ. He has been getting us there, marinating in it, pointing us to look to Jesus. And then in a word, notice how effortlessly Paul shifts from the beauty of the gospel doctrine into the everyday obedience of our lives. Therefore, because Jesus Christ has done this for us, because he has both given us the fuel and the example and the shape of what our obedience is to look like, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, strive for obedience. Therefore, flowing out of what Jesus has done for you, we then live in light of that. Friends, your Christian your life of Christian obedience flows out of the gospel. It is a therefore of the gospel. God has done this for you in Christ. Therefore, we then worship him and offer our lives as a living sacrifice. It is not the other way around. You do not walk through this life going, okay, let me try to be the best version of myself that I can. Let me try to piece together all of this external conformity and morality. And then I'll go to God and say, God, look how good I am. Don't you want me on your team and I've accepted yet? Have I been good enough? And the gospel, the whole point of the gospel is that none of us are good enough. And yet God loves us anyway. He loves us to be able to come and die for us in our place. And because that is then true, our obedience flows out of the gospel. It is a therefore of the gospel. It does not earn God's love. It flows out. Your obedience to Jesus is a response, not a payment. Your following Jesus is an act of worship, not one of trying to gain his love and acceptance. And so Paul gives us the foundation of our obedience there in that word, therefore. It's in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. As we go on, I'm going to be continually wiping my eyes from all the sweat that's there because it's incredibly salty. So just, just bear with me as I do this throughout the rest of the sermon. I need a sweat rag or something up here, I feel like, but we'll, we'll make it through. My finger wipers will work good enough. 
So Paul continues on. He says, here's the foundation of our obedience. Therefore, what God has done for us in Christ through Jesus. Now he gives us the action of our obedience. Now I'm going to skip over these next few words, and we'll come back next week as Paul writes with great affection, my dear friends. You hear Paul relating to the church and the affection he has for him. We'll pick that up next week. And then how he points out God's grace in their life, just as you have always obeyed. We'll come back around to that next week as well. But then Paul gets into the meat of the command. He says, so now, not only in my presence, but even much more in my absence. Here's the command. Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. There's the command. Now, what I see as I look at verse 12, this is a definition of Paul's understanding of Christian obedience. Right, you hear it at the very, uh, the very beginning. Just as you have always obeyed, Paul's talking about obedience. So now work out your own salvation. Paul is saying, just as you have always obeyed, so now continue to obey. Well, what does that obedience look like? He gives us a definition work out your own salvation. Paul is saying, you have to work it out. There is effort that is required, there is energy that is needed. You must work out. Now, two quick clarifications before diving in, though. Notice it doesn't say work for. Work for your own salvation. Paul isn't saying that you have to go and try to earn this acceptance. You don't work for your own salvation, but neither does it say chill out with your own salvation. Paul doesn't say, hey, God has saved you. His grace has covered you. You have nothing else to do ever. Just sit back, relax. God's grace has it covered. Just chill out with your own salvation. Jesus has accepted you. It is finished. No, Paul says work out. Now, there is the reason why I want to take time here tonight over these two verses is because there is all sorts of dangerous places that we can go if we aren't careful and we don't look at God's word. Right? Some people get concerned when you begin to hear. Red flags go up when you hear effort, energy, working, and rightfully so. There's, there's a part of us that goes, no, the gospel is about the grace of God. It's not a paycheck. We don't, we don't earn it. We don't put forth effort then to God to then owe us something, and that's exactly right. And that's talking about salvation, how it is we are saved. Dallas Willard, I think, puts it best. He was a, a philosopher in the 1900s. When talking about grace, he put it this way. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Paul is here just picking up on biblical language of once we become saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is not our own doing, not that we've done any kind of work so that no man can boast. Once that has happened, now the process of living the Christian life and following Jesus is one in which we must now work out our salvation. Something that has happened to us internally is now being worked out in our life and it requires our effort. I love this quote from uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. He put it this way. It's a great quote. I'm going to come back around and focus on three words in it. But he says this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. That's not our natural bent. We don't just sit back and just drift towards holiness and godliness. He says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, 
obedience to the scriptures, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And there's a phrase in there I want us to come back to because it's the phrase I think Paul's trying to communicate here. Apart from grace-driven effort. Those three words, grace-driven effort. There is effort that is required from us to live the Christian life. We are to work out our salvation. But that effort is driven by and fueled by the grace of God. Seen first in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then in the power of God's spirit that dwells in every single Christian. But there is still effort that is required. And this is what I think Paul is getting at here, telling them to work out their own salvation. Because Paul is dealing with a very particular issue in this church. There was division that had arisen within the church. There were people that had begun to pull the church apart. Paul's going to address them directly in chapter 4. But here he's laying the foundation for how to address it. And he's telling them, if you want to fight against division, and he's going to get into it next week, do nothing from grumbling or complaining. It's going to get incredibly practical. He's saying, work out your salvation. Fight against sin and temptation. There is effort that is required. I want to go to a couple other verses in the New Testament to show that this is just a New Testament idea on the effort that is required of us. Hebrews 12, 14 puts it this way. It says that we should strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. We should strive for holiness. That is not a passive idea. It's a, an understanding that we are doing the striving. First Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with pointless or silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. You begin to hear Paul saying, Work out your salvation. Train yourself in godliness. Right? If you are a crossfitter or an opexer or a wh whatever kind of uh, worker outer you are, you know that training doesn't happen by sitting on the couch and eating a bunch of Cheetos. You have to go and work out. You have to put forward the effort. Paul is saying, train yourself in godliness. Put forth that effort. 2 Peter 1.5 puts it this way, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. So put forward every effort that you have to take the faith which has saved you and supplement to it goodness and endurance to that faith. Or in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a beautiful statement. That's something that we all need to be able to come back and say about ourselves. I am only here today by the grace of God. He has brought me here. Paul continues, though, and says, But his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So Paul's continuing this idea that the Christian life takes effort. We must work out our salvation, strive for holiness, train yourself in godliness, make every effort, work harder than any of them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying you want to fight sin, you need to fight temptation, you have to put forth effort. It will not just happen on its own. 
And then he gives us our posture and our position of that obedience. That it requires effort, it requires work, and the posture and position should be with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, here's another point that people can get this misconstrued. We can read this and go, oh, what this must be saying is that, okay, we're going to fight sin, fight temptation, follow Jesus, and we're going to do it afraid. We're going to be trembling, always worried that at any point we misstep, God might denounce us or God might remove his love from us or God might, might somehow pull away from us. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's nowhere in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible. In fact, Alec Mateer, who wrote a commentary on Philippians, put it this way, and I'll just read this and we'll have to move on. But he put it this way. I thought it was so well said. He said, This, though, command is not the fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. It is not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt that we might do to him. As we walk through this life, God's love for us is secure. Friends, if you are a Christian, God's countenance is a smile on you, and it is fixed. It is unchanging. There are times in which we will fall, and we will then fall under his discipline, and he is working to correct us, but he does not love us any less, and we do not have to worry about fear and trembling of him running away from us. But no, we then instead, with fear and trembling, of the hurt that we might do to him, the, heart, the harm that we might cause him as his children, seeing us choose things that we feel like are better that are not. And just as a father watching their child choose things you know aren't best for them, there's a pain that causes within you. But it does not change your relationship with your child. That is fixed and it is unchanging. And so it is the same with us. We are walking forward, working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. So Paul puts forward very clearly, here is what you have to do, church in Philippi, any Christian. You want to fight the Christian fight? You want to live the Christian life? You want to follow Jesus? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make every effort. Strive for holiness. Train yourself into godliness. Work harder than any of them. And now if we just stopped there and the book of Philippians ended, you may feel what I would feel at the end of that and go, okay, I want to do that, but I know that I cannot. I know that I can't always keep forward that effort. I want to want to do that, but I know that I can't keep doing it on my own and mustering it up. But praise God, the book of Philippians does not end in verse 12. That after we see what our work is and the effort that is required from us, we then get to verse 13 and we see God's work. We see God's grace and we see his indwelling of his people. So Paul continues in verse 13, and he writes this. He says, for, because. Again, you see him connecting that command to now what he's about to say. He says, you are to work out your salvation, your own salvation. Why? Because it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. What incredible news is that? 
That here is then the Christian gospel command, fight sin, run after Jesus. He is better. Make every effort. Strive for holiness. Train yourself unto godliness. Work harder than any of them. Work out your own salvation. Why? Because, because God is the one who is at work in you. God is the one working inside of you. He has now given His very Spirit to indwell each and every one of us to begin to give us the heart and the active obedience to be able to do the very command that He just laid out. And I love that Paul, Paul could have just ended and said, because God is at work in you. And that would have been a glorious comfort. That would have been an incredible encouragement. But Paul goes a step further to get specific. He says, you want to know how God is at work in you? He is at work in you both to will. He is at work within your heart, within your desires, what it is you want. And he is at work in your working, in your doing, in your actions. God is the one who is working both of them. Because let me tell you what God is not after. God is not after worshipers who are only willing to follow him, but are not actually doing it. That would create a whole church of people who were lazy and hypocritical, who said, I want to follow Jesus, I'm just not going to do any of it. God is not looking for people who are just willing to follow him. On the same token, he's not looking for people who are just willing to work for him and to have this external conformity to morality and to feel like they then are becoming righteous on their own, in their own effort, what it is they are doing, and kind of begrudgingly coming along going, I don't want to do this, but God's making me do it, so here we go. Here is my obedience. That is not the kind of worship God is after. God is after those who are obeying and following Him both to will and to work, both in our hearts and in our hands, both in our desiring and in our doing, in our wanting and our actions. God is the one working to create both of those in our lives. And so I don't know about you, but in those moments when I fall, the passage and the promise of verse 13 is such a sweet promise. To fall back and remind myself, I have fallen. I know that I haven't followed Jesus, but let me come back because I know God is working in me. He is the one at work in me. He is the decisive worker in my life. Yes, I am to work out my salvation, but God is the one first working in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has moved in to the neighborhood of my soul and is renovating it to look more and more like Jesus every single day. Right, have you ever seen the show Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines? Right, this was their whole thing. They move into a house they find it, it's run down, it's abandoned. They say, we want that one. They go into it, and what do they do? They start knocking down walls. They start finding shiplap all over the place. They start bringing in furniture. They start making everything open concept. Everything's farmhouse, modern, chic, whatever it is. And they go in, and they completely renovate it. Sometimes it's deconstructing. They're tearing stuff out in demolition. Sometimes it's building up and creating walls where there wasn't walls. And then at some point, it's just decorating, making things look beautiful. And at the end, there is the glorious reveal to the homeowners. Look at what we have now done for you. Your house that once looked like this, which was garbage, now looks like this and is the best house in the neighborhood. 
Friends, that is a picture of what God is doing in each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us is not passive, is not just sitting back and saying, hey, you go and take this from here on out. I saved you, but now you've got it from here. I'm not giving you any help. Also, he is not some magic genie that we rub whenever we really need him or whenever we really want something. But no, the Holy Spirit we see in verse 13 is an active indweller that has moved in and is renovating our souls. At times, deconstructing and tearing out what doesn't need to be there. At times, constructing and building up structures that look more like Jesus. At times, finding pictures of these beautiful things that need to be brought back to life and then ultimately decorating and making us look more and more like the Son. And what Paul says earlier in Philippians 1 verse 6 is that God, who started a good work in you will carry it on until completion until the day of Christ Jesus when we will be revealed to be gloriously true and beautiful there in the presence of our Savior and the work will not have been our own primarily it would have been what God has done in us he is the worker God is working in us through his grace and dwelling us with his spirit working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure only God's power makes godly effort even possible we cannot walk out of here and muster up true Christian obedience on our own we can't even walk out of here and create true effort on our own our true desire on our own That doesn't happen apart from God's Spirit miraculously working in us. Friends, every single act of Christian obedience, no matter how grandiose or how small, is a supernatural miracle of the Holy Spirit of God. It is not our own doing. We are only able to work out because God is working in. Our work is only possible because God does His work. And so we see in this section this beautiful picture in verses 5 through 11 of the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul then says, because of that foundation, because of the life and mind of Jesus, that should shape and fuel our obedience. The command in verse 12, that's the therefore. 5 through 11 provides the foundation. Paul then builds this structure, this therefore pole, and now builds this command to say, therefore now work out your salvation. Follow Jesus. Obey him. Well, why? Then we get another supporting structure over here. Because... God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what we see, the command to follow Jesus, the command to obey what it is God has said, even in, especially in the moments where we don't want to, that command is made possible because the life of Jesus fuels and shapes our obedience from verses 5 through 11. And the spirit of Jesus promises and enables our obedience in verse 13. Verse 12 is only possible because of both of what's around it. The life of Jesus fuels and shapes our obedience, and the Spirit of Jesus promises and enables our obedience. To go back to 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I didn't finish the verse earlier, though. Because you know how Paul finishes that verse? That verse of saying, I worked harder than any of them. He finishes and says, yet not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. You hear again this combination of Paul saying, I worked harder than any of them, but even in my working, it was not I who was working. Yet not I, but the grace of God who was with me, the Spirit of God that was in me. It was yet not I, but through Christ in me that I was even able to work. And there we see this beautiful compatibility between our responsibility and our effort in this life and God's sovereign grace in his life who gives us the very ability to be able to carry out the command that he's given to be able to obey him. There's an old poem that I love. It's attributed to John Bunyan. I don't, I don't think it was actually him, but someone wrote it at some point. It doesn't really matter because it's beautiful and we're going to read it. They wrote this. It said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. And so we have the command of the law, run, run, obey, obey, do, do. But in the law, we don't have feet or hands to be able to do what the law is commanding us. If we just have the law to be able to do what it is God has told us to do, we will always fall short of it. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That in the gospel, we still have the command to obey and follow Jesus. But in the command is given the empowered spirit of God to be able to do it. To be able to bid us to fly and give us wings to do it. To be able to follow Jesus. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we are called to work out what God has worked in. Work out your own salvation because God is the one working in you. He commenced the work. He is continuing the work and he will complete the work. But if we hear that and go, oh, well, I'm good to go then. I can just step back, not have to do anything and God will take care of all of it. Then friends, we do not understand his grace at work in us. God's sovereign grace does not negate our responsibility, and it does not negate our effort. It fuels it. It drives us. It gives us comfort. It is a tremendous encouragement to know that what we have been called to do, God is empowering us to be able to do it. If it drives us to no longer work, that we don't understand what he has done for us or what he's doing for us, his grace initiates our obedience his grace enables our obedience his grace energizes our obedience his grace epitomizes our obedience his grace enlivens our obedience and his grace ensures our obedience work out your own salvation strive for holiness train yourself in godliness make every effort because God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure now I want to close with just one, one group of person that may or may not be here tonight. That maybe you walked under this tent or here in the shade and you're walking in with a limp. And you're walking in going, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. But there is sin that is present in my life that I cannot shake. I cannot overcome. It feels like I don't have the power to be able to get past it. I hate it. I want to be done with it. 
I want to move past it, but I can't move on. And in moments of honesty, maybe you felt like that you really can't. That it is just too strong or too powerful, has too much of a grip on your life. Maybe you've walked in questioning whether or not you're a Christian at all. And you've walked in going, I hate this one sin in my life and I just feel like there's no power to move past it. Whether it's addiction or some other, some other sin in your life, if that is you, you've already filled in the blank for what that is. It's clear. I don't have to go any further. And I've been there in moments, in decades of my life, where it felt like I can't get past this sin no matter how much I hate it or how much I want to stop. And at times you feel powerless. Friends, if that is you, I want us to just pause and look again at verse 13. As you work out your own salvation and you feel like you have no power over your sin, you are exactly right. But God then tells you this, that he is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good purposes. God has given his spirit, placed it within you to give you both the desire and the action and the obedience to be able to follow him. The power does not come from you or your strength or your discipline or what your plans are or how many walls of accountability you set up around you. All of those things are good. But friends, the power that comes from overcoming that sin does not come from you. Here tonight, it comes from the power of God in you. And there is no sin that is too powerful for the grace of God. What God says is the very spirit that hovered the waters and spoke the earth into existence. The very spirit that parted the Red Sea and allowed the whole nation of Israel to walk through it. The very spirit that kept in form an entire country together in the Old Testament. The very spirit that dwelt within Jesus throughout his entire life to live perfectly and without sin. And the very same spirit Paul writes in Romans 8 that was there and raised Jesus from the dead. That same spirit now dwells in you to help you put to death the flesh within you. Paul is saying the power that you have comes not from you, but the active indweller, the promised God of the universe who now dwells within you, who promises to work and to will to give you the power to put that sin to death. And so you don't just walk out of here and snap your fingers and it's done. No, you have to work your salvation out. But remember the undercurrent and the foundation of your fight is not in your ability, but in God's promise. And his promise that says, I will dwell within you and I will both work and will within you for my good pleasure. And he will carry us on. And so we work out our salvation. We strive for holiness. We train ourselves in godliness. We make every effort so that one day we will stand before the throne with joy and be able to say, God, I worked harder than any of them. And without pause or hesitation, be able to say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. God, we are so, so grateful that you have not left us on our own. God, you have promised to be with us and promised to give us the power. So God, help us to see the way in which these two things work together. God, give us the effort, energize our abilities to go and to fight 
to train ourselves for godliness, but to see that we are only working out what you have already worked in. God, that your spirit would empower us and enable us to be able to follow Jesus and to live for him. God, help us to get that clear as we look next week then at how we practically start to fight against sin in our lives in the smallest of ways and the largest of ways. God, sell these truths deep inside our hearts and help us to see that the only way we run this race is through grace and through grace alone. God, we thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.